Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you once again for joining us. You are signing up, whether you meant to or not, for episode three of Journeys into the Land of Whiteness. I'm your host, your tour guide, your favorite new voice on whatever podcasts happen to fill up your list of favorite podcasts, Jimmy Lincoln. As I just said, I appreciate y'all joining me once again as I talk about shit that white people aren't supposed to talk about. Specifically, as I talk about race. And as I do my best to hold myself accountable and by sharing stories of whiteness and white privilege and the edifice that is white supremacy, the water that all of us fish swim in, whether we acknowledge it or not, hopefully to encourage others to hold themselves accountable too. So, just to catch you up real quickly on terrain we have covered, episode one, I shared a story about getting in some disciplinary trouble as a young Young lad, an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, had a summer camp in my hometown of Harrisonburg, Virginia, and how the camp counselors, two white gentlemen, threatened to punish me for my behavioral indiscretions, aka my very humorous fistfight, threatened to punish me for this fistfight by sending me to the quote-unquote black day camp, where the black children, although they weren't talked about as if they were children, were certainly going to whoop my ass repeatedly simply because I was white. And I talked about how that was one of the first instances that I can recall of an adult going out of their way to teach me about whiteness and blackness and to use some really powerful, unfortunately, really, really old, really long-lasting negative racial stereotypes about black men and black people in general. So that was episode one. Talked about being threatened to get thrown into this camp of, of, oh, heaven forbid, black children. But at the time, I, you know, I didn't realize there was anything inappropriate with that threat. At the time, it served its purpose. It scared me to death. I'm not going to lie. Episode two took a little detour. I was no longer the star of episode two. The star of episode two was world-renowned basketball player Ralph Sampson and my grandmother. And though many of you on this podcast have probably heard of Ralph Sampson, I'm guessing very few of you, unless you listen to episode two, know anything about my grandmother. So to summarize, I'll just say she was his kindergarten teacher. And every time it was mentioned to her that she taught him, she would smile and say, yes, she did, and say maybe or maybe not say something nice, I can't recall, but invariably point out how he wasn't very bright or how he wasn't very smart or how he wasn't that good of a student. And I talked about how that kind of reinforced all these negative stereotypes that inundate all of us about black intellectual capability. So that was episode one. 
and then episode two. That's where we've been so far. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you're still relatively on the ground floor. So welcome. I hope we don't waste your time. If you are a repeat listener, yo, I just got nothing for love but you because you helping me build something here, something that I'm building, creating this building as I'm inhabiting it. Like I'm starting this podcast and I've got a lot of stories in mind and I've got a general outline of where I want to go, but every episode keeps unfolding kind of of its own accord organically and I hope to have as many episodes as possible, more than a hundred one day, but right now on episode three, I'm just glad to be here, glad that any of y'all are tuning in. And hopefully for my repeat listeners, you enjoyed hearing about my grandmother last episode because my grandmother plays a starring role in episode three as well. Now, episode two, she was kind of the villain. She was the one reinforcing negative racial stereotypes about black intellectual capabilities. And not just about black intellectual capabilities, but black and the black intellectual capabilities of the most famous citizen of my hometown and the most famous black man that I had any connection whatsoever to. It would have been one thing. It would have been racist and inappropriate, but it would have been one thing if she had just referred to some random black student of hers as not being very bright. But the fact that she referred to Ralph Sampson, the hero of Harrisonburg, Virginia, as not being very bright, it was not only racist and inappropriate, but it carried this added weight. Like an anchor intended to kind of drag him down. Or whether or not it was intended to drag him down, that was the result of it. Because to this day, and I hate this because it's not based in fact whatsoever, but to this day, if someone brings up Ralph Sampson, I am always thinking of my grandmother, and I always think about her comment about his intelligence. And I'm wise enough, I hope, to know that I have no idea if he's intelligent or not, although he does have a degree from the University of Virginia, so I would assume he's no fool. But I can't escape that comment, and I don't think I ever will. So that was my grandmother in episode two. She came off kind of as a villain. But... I need to remind all my white listeners, and I need to remind myself, as your white host, talking about shit white people don't like to talk about, when it comes to race in this country, and when it comes to white supremacy in this country, and when it comes to systemic racism, we are all villains. And I don't mean that to say we're all bad people. I don't mean that to say we're all immoral. But we are all part of this system of white supremacy. And so in that sense, we all are bad guys. And at best, we're fighting to destroy this system. At best, we're fighting to destroy it. But none of us have escaped this system of white supremacy and all that it conveys to us and all the ways it shapes us and those around us in our environment. So I don't want y'all to think that the whole point of this podcast is just to call out white people. Although we're going to do a lot of that. 
It's to examine all the ways that one person has experienced whiteness over the course of their life. So hopefully, if anyone's getting called out in this podcast, hopefully it's me just as much as anybody else. Because that's not going to feel good, but it's what I have to do. It's not comfortable to call yourself out. It's not comfortable to call your family members out. It's not comfortable, comfortable to be called out, especially for something like racism, right, and white supremacy. Lord, white people do not like that. Just mention the idea that they might inadvertently be doing something racist and they lose their shit. But it's what we got to do because this edifice of white supremacy, this self-perpetuating machine is not going to end of its own accord. It's only going to end if we join our black and Latinx and indigenous and other brothers and sisters other non-white, that's such a bad phrase, non-white, right? Like that establishes whiteness as the norm. People of color is also a problematic phrase in my mind because it implies white people are somehow outside the spectrum. But so that all of our black and brown brothers and sisters, we need to stand with them to defeat this machine, this self-perpetuating machine of white supremacy. And we can only really be true allies And we can only truly call ourselves anti-racist if we're being honest about whiteness and our implicit biases and our prejudices and the times that we have been racist, whether it was intentional or not. So that's my rejoinder to anybody who might be a little frustrated about my descriptions of my grandmother, specifically if you're in my family. I think highly of my grandmother. I do. In fact, like I said in the last episode, by the time she passed away at the ripe old age of 97, I probably had more appreciation and respect for her than I ever had in my life. Because not only had she shown a willingness to be challenged on her views, but the more you get to know someone and the more you're an adult yourself and get to know it, older adults in your family, the more you can appreciate them for the complex individuals they are. And yeah, their flaws might come more into, might come through more clearly the older you get. But I think you also, if you're willing to kind of look at people with open eyes and listen to them with open ears, you can begin to understand them and their flaws and their, their strengths as well. And that gives you a deeper appreciation. So Even though my grandmother is going to star in this episode, she's not going to quite take the same villain turn. However, the story, like every story I'm going to tell you in this podcast, deals with race and whiteness and anti-blackness, unfortunately. Because in many ways, in, in, in a system of white supremacy, specifically in the one in the United States that I'm most familiar with, Whiteness, by definition, implies a certain level of anti-blackness. Remember, race grows out of racism, not the other way around. So, with all that being said, let me set the stage. This is another story that's really a story about a story or a story about an anecdote. And it's an anecdote 
that just like my grandmother's comments about Ralph Sampson, it's an anecdote that I heard more than once over the course of my childhood and adolescence and maybe even into my adulthood. I can't tell you how many times my grandmother shared this story, but I know it was multiple. And this story, and I'm about to share it with you, it's a pretty pretty short anecdote, is not like the stories I shared in my first two episodes. In those first two episodes, it was clear whether it was my grandmother criticizing five-year-old Ralph Sampson's intelligence or whether it was two white camp counselors threatening me with the specter of savage black violence. In both those episodes, the negative stereotypes were quite clear and quite explicit. In this anecdote, there's definitely stereotypes and there's definitely norms and there's definitely socialization going on, but it's a lot more nuanced and layered. And so I'm going to share the anecdote and then kind of talk through these different layers or where I see these different layers and how I see them connecting to other things in my life and in society in general. So this anecdote, pretty straightforward. I can't tell you, to be honest, in what context I've ever heard this anecdote. Like I, when you hear it, I don't know what necessarily led up to this anecdote. I guarantee you, because white families don't do this, or if they do, they do it very rarely. I guarantee you this anecdote that my grandmother has shared with me and shared with other members of my family did not come up in the context of some wide-ranging discussion about race and whiteness and racism that my family was having. We just didn't talk about that stuff. Not much, anyway. And even when we did, it was in a very benign, seemingly positive way, such as, you know, if people would just respect people as individuals, we wouldn't have any problems, or one of those kind of nonsensical phrases that white people throw out about race that lets them avoid grappling with the ways that they contribute to white supremacy and the ways they contribute to systemic racism. But even those conversations were few and far between. I'm guessing that when my grandmother told this anecdote, it was preceded maybe by other people in my family talking about their experiences as a teacher, especially their humorous experiences. I come from a family that is filled, and I'm very proud of this, filled with educators. Not only my grandmother, but my mother. I have an uncle. I have another uncle. I have an aunt. I have another aunt who worked in educational publishing for her entire life. Myself, I'm a teacher. I have a brother who's a teacher, another brother who's a counselor with adolescents and teenagers. So like education and working with people and taking that avocation seriously is, is in my blood and something I am proud of. So that's my guess as to how this conversation came up. Did I mention my mother? I just realized in that long list of people, I might have left out my mother. Certainly hope I didn't leave her out, but if I did, it wasn't intentional. My mother also lifelong teacher herself. In this story, my grandmother tells... And like, like most forms of socialization, it's all in the telling. It's all in the tone. It's not obvious at first what messages are being conveyed from the older generation to the younger generation. 
So I'll just share the story and then let it sit with y'all for a little bit. And then I'll talk about what messages I think are being conveyed and how they're being conveyed and how they may or may not. Well, let's be honest, may be problematic. So my grandmother, who spent her entire teaching career, as far as I'm aware, in the city of Harrisonburg, Virginia, and her teaching career, I don't know exactly how long it lasted. I don't know exactly when she got in the classroom, but I'm going to wager that her teaching career lasted, let's say, 20 years, and so let's say 1965 to 1985 give or take a few years, by the time that I can remember, she was out of the classroom. So that, I feel like by the, and I was born in 78, so by the time I was seven or eight years old, which would be right around 85, 86, she was out of the classroom. Anyway, my grandmother tells this story, and it takes place early in her teaching career, but not in the 60s. My guess is it takes place in the early 70s when the schools across Virginia had finally been integrated. And for those of y'all who aren't, aren't hip to your dates and history, that's fine, not a judgment. But I need to remind you, because integration plays a role in this story, that the Supreme Court case that declared segregated schools to be unconstitutional was decided in 1954. However, throughout many southern states, integration wasn't fully carried out because the Supreme Court used the phrase in their majority ruling with all deliberate speed. So they kind of gave localities and they gave states and they gave counties and they gave cities a loophole to kind of drag their feet in terms of how quickly they wanted to integrate their school systems to the extent that in some counties in Virginia, and this is true probably in other states, but I haven't researched it recently, they just completely decided to shut down their public schools instead of even having to worry about integrate them with all deliberate speed. They just said, well, if we don't have public schools, then no one has to worry about integration. And the white kids went to private schools, and the black children did not get educated. I believe there were some counties in Northern Virginia that did not have public school systems for two to three years during the late 60s, early 70s. Anyway, so my point is school integration, something that we celebrate in every American history classroom throughout America, like Brown versus Board of Education, I guarantee you, is in the curriculum of every state in America. We're not always honest about it. We treat it like this giant victory, and we don't talk about the massive resistance that occurred in southern states, and in some cases, mid-Atlantic and even northern states, the massive resistance to integration efforts. And how we certainly don't talk about how that resistance is ongoing and continuing. I mentioned it in previous episodes It bears repeating that there are plenty of school systems, there are plenty of cities and districts and counties throughout our country today that are more segregated today in 2020 than they were in 1954. That's some scary shit. Back to my grandmother in her kindergarten classroom. This story takes, takes place sometime in the early 70s. From what I know, Harrisonburg City Schools were not fully integrated till sometime in the late 60s. 
So at the time of this story, I doubt my grandmother had taught many black children. I think by the end of her career, that changes somewhat. Obviously, if you tuned in the last episode or paid attention to my introduction tonight, you know she taught Ralph Sampson. Anyway, this story involves a new student, a young little black girl from Atlanta, if my memory serves me. I'm not 100% positive about that, and I wish my grandmother had told me her name because that would make it easier for me to remember, but the two young students in this story are nameless, and that's probably fair anyway because they were five or six at the time. Anyway, my grandmother tells this story about a time that there were two little girls at a table in her classroom. A young black girl who was new to her class and from Atlanta, and a young white student who was a local kid. The white kid was from Harrisonburg, had been in my grandmother's classroom all year. Young black girl from Atlanta had just transferred into my grandmother's classroom because ostensibly her family, I'm assuming, had just moved to Harrisonburg recently. I don't know how far into the school year this this event took place, but just for argument's sake, let's say it's like February or something. And my grandmother tells this anecdote about how one day, after this young black girl had recently transferred into her class, she hears the young black girl, the new girl, and this little white girl talking as they're sitting at a table coloring. And the way my grandmother tells the story, it, it comes off pretty humorously. And anyone who's worked with children, I think you'll see the humor in this story. But it also is clear who my grandmother in this story identifies with and thinks is, is kind of correct. So in this story, young black girl, new to Harrisonburg, new to my grandmother's class from Atlanta, coloring at a table with a young white girl, not new to my grandmother's class, not from Atlanta, born and raised in Harrisonburg. And as they're coloring, the topic of favorite colors comes up. And the way my grandmother tells it, the young black girl, the new kid from Atlanta, begins to talk about how black is her favorite color and how black is beautiful and how black is strong and black is amazing. And my grandmother, when she relates this anecdote, makes it clear and she makes it clear explicitly that she's pretty certain that this young child, this new kid in her class, this new black child in her class from Atlanta, is just repeating stuff she has heard at home. And I want to be like, every time... I'd hear that story, I'd be like, no shit, Grandma, that's what every five-year-old does, not just this young black girl talking about black is beautiful. And in the telling, it's clear from the way my grandmother would tell this story, the young girl from Atlanta is talking as much about skin color, if not completely about skin color, as she is about crayons or colored pencils or markers. She is, in the most direct and maybe powerful way ever, Showing love for herself and love for her family and love for people who look for, look like her. Black is beautiful. Black is my favorite color. It reminds me somewhat of how Issa from Insecure, how Issa Rae from Insecure 
I think she was at, I don't know if it was the Oscars. It must have been the Emmys, right? That, that would make sense because I'm sure her show was nominated for an Emmy. And this was probably in 2016, 17. One of the red carpet people asked her who she was rooting for that night. And she said, I'm rooting for everybody black. And some white people were really unhappy about that. But we'll get to that in a second. So this young student in my grandmother's class sitting next to her white peer. And the young black girl is talking about how black is beautiful and black is her favorite color. And after giving this speech, at least my grandmother referred to it as a speech, the young black student pauses and turns to the white girl next to her and says, and what's your favorite color? And my grandmother tells this well, and she says the white girl paused as, as well and then responded, hmm, I think my favorite color is purple. At which point, the listener and my grandmother all laugh how funny kids can be, how naive kids can be, how innocent kids can be, all of that. And that's it. That's the anecdote. See, I told y'all my grandmother wasn't going to be super villain this episode. However, the more I think about this story, the more I realize there are still layers relating to whiteness and blackness and racism and and how this whole system, this whole edifice I keep referring to, this whole structure of white supremacy works. So for one, the first layer that I think of when I think of this story is how my grandmother in her telling makes it very clear that the young black girl who is talking about black is beautiful is somehow talking out of turn somehow introducing race into a conversation where race doesn't belong. And the more I think about it, basically what my grandmother was doing and the way she told the story is kind of, I don't want to say making fun of because it's a little more complicated than that. But kind of calling out this young black student for playing a race card unnecessarily. And it just makes me think about how often white people loft that criticism at black folks. How often white people, either out of fear, either out of fragility, either out of anger or resentment or ignorance, I'm not always 100% sure what the motive is, but how white people love to answer any time black people bring up race, how white people love to answer with this criticism of, well, you're introducing race where it doesn't belong, which is hilarious because the older I get and the more I read and the more I shut my mouth and the more I listen, the more I realize in that in the United States, there is nowhere where race doesn't belong because race has penetrated every aspect of our society. And there is nowhere where white supremacy doesn't need to be challenged because white supremacy has penetrated every aspect of our society. And you know who knows both of these facts and has known both of these facts for hundreds of years? Black people. So the idea that you can't talk about race in some situations or that it's inappropriate to talk about race in some situations. The more I read and the more I think and the more I reflect and the more I experience, I think that idea is just bullshit. I think that's just 
another attempt by white people, even if it's a subconscious or unconscious attempt, it's another attempt by white people not to address racial issues as they really are in this country and not to address their own whiteness and the privileges that come with that. So that's one layer to that story. The idea that this this young black girl who was saying, as I said, something that's direct and powerful and, and beautiful when she states that black is her favorite color because black is beautiful. How my grandmother's telling of this anecdote implies that this girl was somehow acting inappropriately. And you hear that also. A second layer, I guess, related a bit to this first layer is this resistance you hear amongst many white people to any statement or organization that in any way refers to black power or black pride or even black lives matter and how so many white people get caught up on the the semantics of that phrase and think that black pride and black love and black self-love is somehow an attack on whiteness. And although it's not, white people are tipping that hand, tipping their hand. We're tipping our, tipping our hand. Let me stop separating myself from white people. Because we understand that whiteness has always been defined in part as anti-blackness. When you create a hierarchy of races and you put yourself on top, then you're kind of anti-everything below you. <coughs> Excuse me. So when we hear black people, black communities, black families, black groups, black five-year-old girls from Atlanta expressing pride in their blackness, we have trouble conceptualizing that as anything other than anti-whiteness because White pride and white power and statements like that are, by definition, because we're at the top of the hierarchy, those statements have always been anti-black and anti-brown and anti-indigenous and anti-people of Asian descent. And so it's really hard for us to conceptualize how black is beautiful or black lives matter or black power could be strong and powerful and meaningful and not anti-white. So that's one layer, or two, as I said, one and one A. Another layer of this story is the white girl's response of her favorite color being purple. Now, hey, I must admit, in a vacuum, it's, it's a funny story. It's two people talking about, it's like a who's on first routine, right? Two people talking, using words in the same language, but using them in such a different way that they're talking past each other instead of to each other. And what I think about, too, is this idea that this, and you see this amongst many white parents and many white families, even progressive white families, even white families and white parents who consider themselves allies, this this reluctance or resistance or inability to talk directly to their children, especially their youngest children, about race. 
and I don't know, I think part of that is this fear. White people have this fear, and you see it all the time, that if somehow they bring up race, that they're actually going to divide and cause tension and hatred. And once again, remember, race isn't what leads to racism. Race is the result of racism. Like race is created as a system of white supremacy is created. So bringing up race isn't going to make people more racist. And it's certainly not going to divide communities or cities or classrooms anymore. In racial terms, what has caused the most division in this country is white supremacy and racism, not the idea of talking about racism or talking about race. Yet yet and still, you see that many white families really struggle with how to talk to their children about racism and anti-racist behavior. So much so that if you can write a half-decent children's book about racism and anti-racism, you can get paid. Because there's nothing white progressives love more than a good children's book. And a good children's book that makes them feel good about themselves and makes them feel like they're raising strong anti-racist children for the future. Man, that's a, that's a win-win in many white people's minds. And so I think my grandmother's story speaks to this idea, too. But it also speaks to this idea of white privilege. And and one of the privileges of whiteness in this country that white people hate talking about, we hate talking about all the privileges, but this is one we really hate talking about, is how white privilege allows us to pretend that we exist somehow outside of race. And therefore, we exist somehow outside of racism. And therefore, as long as we're not actively a hate-filled person, we can exist outside of white supremacy. And none of those three things are true. We cannot exist at the moment anyway until we really radically reconfigure society. But as things stand in 2020, we can't exist outside of race, we can't exist outside of racism, and we certainly can't exist outside of white supremacy. And we're never going to exist outside of any of those or destroy any of those systems if we struggle to admit they even exist or exist on a systemic level. That's white privilege. White families don't have to talk to their children about race. And if they do, it's usually in one of those really seemingly positive but unintentionally hurtful kind of comments where white parents just say, well, I raise my children just to treat everyone equally. Or I raise my children to treat everyone with respect. Or I raise my children to treat people the way they want to be treated. In a vacuum, once again, none of that stuff is bad. In practice, you're not raising anti-racist children. You're raising nice people. Maybe, hopefully. But nice people aren't going to defeat systemic racism. It's going to take a lot more than being nice to bring down the structure of white supremacy that's been built up. Now, black families and Latinx families and families of Asian descent and indigenous families, they don't have the luxury of not talking to their children about race and racism. Not talking directly to their children about race and racism. And the reason they don't have that luxury is because it's a means and a matter of survival. 
and not just physical survival, although that's a real, very real thing too. And any of my black listeners who have black sons know, know the pain and the horror and the frustration and the sheer impotence that comes along with having to teach your black son how to navigate a violently racist world. But even on a psychological and emotional level, anyone in America who's not white has to teach their children about race and racism as soon as they can to give their children the strength and the tools to navigate a world dominated by white supremacy. And that young girl from Atlanta, her parents, had, or whoever raised her, had done a great job. Because if you've got a five-year-old black girl in Harrisonburg, Virginia, surrounded by country white folks, and she's saying black is beautiful, that's an amazing amount of self-love that I wish my, my grandmother had encouraged. Now, I don't know what my grandmother, to be honest, said to this young girl, because the anecdote begins and ends with the white girl saying, my favorite color is purple, and everyone giggles. I have a feeling my grandmother didn't didn't celebrate this young young child's blackness in the way that it deserved to be celebrated. But since I don't know one way or the other, I'll leave it be. The last layer of this story that I want to mention, and this ties back, I think, to the idea that my the way that my grandmother tells the story, the young black girl is is kind of talking out of turn is this idea that we have, and once again, we, I'm speaking of white families, this idea that we have that young children don't notice race. And perhaps there's something to that. If racism and white supremacy and race are things that have to be taught because they're social constructs, doesn't mean they're not real, but it doesn't mean they're natural and organic. It means society creates them. Then it would make sense that the longer someone is exposed to this teaching, to this socialization, aka the older they are, the more clearly they're going to understand all the unwritten rules that make up all these systems. And I think there is something to that. However, I also think that children are more aware of these systems going on, even at the age of five and six, than we give them credit for. Now, as I mentioned, black and Latinx and children of Asian descent and indigenous children have to be aware of these systems for their emotional and their psychological and, most tragically, their physical survival. But even white children, I think, and there's some some new research in the last five or so years that keeps pushing back the age of when children become aware of race. But we somehow, and by we again, I think white people, want to pretend that children, especially our children, our biological children that we raise, that they're innocent of any racialized thinking. And it's just not the case. Not to mention, saying something like that also kind of smacks of that that claim that white people like to make that they don't see color. As if our eyes don't notice differences in melanin in people's skin. Fuck out of here with that shit, white people. 
little kids see color. They know people look different. Now, I think there is an interesting conversation to have about what kind of meaning they attach to melanin or lack of melanin and how that meaning develops over time. In some ways, that's kind of the whole point of this podcast. But I guess my last point about this layered story that I'm trying to un unlayer or unravel is that little children, even kindergarten age children, aren't fools. And so I think as a parent myself, as a teacher myself, and don't worry, my classroom experiences are coming up in future episodes. And most importantly, for this context, as a white person, if we're going to expect to raise anti-racist children, we've got to do more than just read a few fucking children's books. And we've got to do so much more than just to tell them not to judge people by the color of their skin or to respect everyone or to be kind. That shit is not good enough. We have got to teach them about race, racism, and most importantly, whiteness and white supremacy. Because if we don't do that, then we raise a bunch of little white kids that think racism is just a bunch of good old boys wearing white hoods and burning crosses. And while that is racism, that's not the racism that's destroying lives across this country. That The racism that the real enemy, the systemic racism that affects everything from where people live to where they go to school, to the jobs they have, to who they marry, to where they worship and how they worship, to whether or not they live after a chance encounter with a police officer, that racism is not going to be defeated if white families and white adults keep acting like that little five-year-old girl in my grandmother's classroom talking about their favorite color is purple and how they don't even think about race and see race because that's kind of the final coda to all this. As always, thank y'all for following me down the many, many paths. I'm calling this, this podcast Journeys into the Land of Whiteness because it is that. It is a rhetorical and intellectual and it's an emotional historical journey, which means many paths. Sometimes my tongue moves faster than my brain. So I I just want to thank all my listeners once again for trying to keep up. Like always, I welcome your comments, your questions, your concerns, your opinions. Most importantly, and this is especially for my white listeners, your stories, your stories of whiteness, how it was conveyed to you, how you participated in perpetuating this system, how you fought back against this system. But I want to hear your stories because that's the whole point of this this project. Whatever it is, whatever it's going to be, we need to start having some real honest conversations. You can reach me at jameslincoln313 at gmail.com. Once again, that's jameslincoln313 at gmail.com. For everybody listening, As always, I appreciate you. Keep thinking, keep fighting, keep asking questions. Peace and love. We'll talk again soon. I'm out.